Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. If you're here looking for Dan Celia, please pray for Dan. He's recovering from an illness. My name's Frank Turek. I have a program normally here on the American Family Radio Network on Saturday mornings, uh, but I'm filling in for Dan this week every day but tomorrow. Uh, past couple of days, we've covered issues. What is real love? Is it just a feeling? Yesterday, we covered the 10 reasons socialism doesn't work. Today, I'd like to talk about something that should be near and dear to all of our hearts. In fact, recently, uh, I got an email from a United States Marine. So I knew this man was no wimp, but he actually wasn't writing me as a tough guy. He was writing me as a distraught father. He said, my daughter was the top Christian student in her high school class. She helped lead the youth group at church. She won several scholarships from Christian organizations that she could take to any college she wanted to. So she wanted to go to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill to win the campus for Christ. And trust me, it needs to be one for Christ. I live in North Carolina. It is a very liberal institution. Anyway, this Marine father said, I sent my daughter off there. And uh, four weeks into her first semester, I got a phone call from her. Her words devastated me. She said, Dad... I don't believe in God anymore. Don't believe in God anymore? What? He said, I got in my car. I drove four hours down to Chapel Hill that weekend. I sat down with her and I got nowhere with her. What do you mean you don't believe in God anymore? What happened? And she said, well, we have a professor here at Chapel Hill who says we don't even know who wrote the Gospels and the Bible has errors in it. So, Dad, I'm an atheist now. Now, ladies and gentlemen, do you think that this young woman in four weeks could have investigated all the evidence for and against Christianity and made a rational decision in just four weeks? No. No. What happened was, is she went off to the college unarmed. What's the easiest way to get picked off in a war? The easiest way to get picked, on a, to, to get picked off in a war is to not know you're in one. <laughs> and we are in a war for the hearts and minds just of our young people, not just of our young people, but of all of us. The most anti-Christian real estate in America is probably the college campus. But in reality, many kids walk away from Christianity even before they get to the college campus because they get a lot of skepticism right off their iPhones, right off their droids, right off the internet. 30 years ago, you wouldn't have that kind of thing. Now it's everywhere, and they don't know how to answer much of this. And one of the reasons they don't know how to answer much of it is because we, as a church, hardly teach any evidence that Christianity is true. We just have, we, we just tell kids, just have faith. Yeah, does that, does that work when they go off to a college campus? Do you think their professors say, oh, just have faith what I'm saying is true? No, the professors at least try and give some evidence for what they think they're telling the students. They try and say, well, here's why I think, say, Christianity is false and something else is true. But we Christians, we don't even obey the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. 
Peter says, always be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have. Paul says, I'm set in defense of the gospel. And he also says, we demolish arguments and take every thought captive to Christ. Jude says, contend for the faith. Isaiah recorded that God said, come let us reason together. I mean, it's throughout the scriptures that we ought to have evidence for what we believe. But we don't. And that's why so many young people, about three out of four, walk away from the church once they leave the home. Three out of four who are in church before they go, walk away once they go. And as I said, some of them, probably a majority of them, check out even before they go to college because they're met with skepticism online. So my, my quest today is to kind of summarize why we know Christianity is true. And the details are in our book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. So if you want to go into depth on this, you can, but we're just going to look at it from 30,000 feet. How do we know Christianity is true? Well, we have to cover four questions. We have to investigate four questions to see whether or not Christianity is true. The first question is, does truth exist? Because if there's no truth, you hear people saying there's no truth, or you got your truth, I got my truth, then Christianity can't be true. So let's deal with that question first. What do you say to somebody who says there's no truth? Well, you should ask that person a question. The question should be, when they say there is no truth, you want to ask them, is that true? Is it true that there's no truth? Because if it's true that there's no truth, the claim there is no truth can't be true, but it claims to be true. See, there is no truth is what we call a self-defeating statement. It doesn't meet its own standard. It violates the law of non-contradiction to say there's no truth. Because it's a very truth claim itself to say there's no truth. Or sometimes it's said this way, all truth is relative. If someone were to say all truth is relative, you want to ask them the question, is that a relative truth? Because all truth is relative is not a relative truth. It's an absolute truth claiming that all truth is relative. It's like saying I can't speak a word in English. If I were to say I can't speak a word in English, what would you say? Hey, you just used English to say it. This is a self-defeating statement. And what you have to do in order to discover that there is truth or defend the fact that, there's is that there is truth is you need to turn the claim on itself. Turn the claim on itself. So if someone says there's no truth, you turn the claim on itself and say, is that true? Or if somebody says all truth is relative, you turn the claim on itself and say, is that a relative truth? You see, this is self-defeating. It's like saying I can't speak a word in English. Or it's like saying my parents had no kids that lived. I mean, it's self-defeating. Or it's like saying, my brother is an only child, right? These, these can't be true by definition. They defeat themselves. Now, today, you don't really hear people saying it directly, there is no truth. Um, sometimes they'll say all truth is relative, but probably what they say more than any other way of putting this today is to say something like this. There isn't the truth, only my truth. There isn't the truth, only my truth. It sounds so true, doesn't it? You just have your truth, I have my truth. I mean, it's so Oprah, isn't it? Sounds so right. Yeah, you just live your truth, I'll live my truth. There's a big problem with this claim, though. If someone says there isn't the truth, only my truth, you want to turn the claim on itself and say, is that just your truth or the truth? If the claim, there isn't the truth, only my truth, is just your personal truth, well, why should I believe it then? But if you're claiming that... There isn't the truth, only my truth is really the truth. You just got done telling me there is no such thing as the truth. It's defeating itself, this claim is. This is a logical contradiction. 
The truth of the matter is, and I know a lot of people in our culture are going to be upset by this, there's no such thing as your truth or my truth. There's just the truth. You might as well say I have my own math to say I have my own truth. Suppose you hire somebody to work for you, and you say, I'll give you $10 an hour. And they work for 15 hours, and they come to you, you owe me $15,000. And you go, whoa, whoa, no, 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 you're doing the math wrong. I only owe you $150. And you go, oh, no, no, no. Or the, or the other person goes, oh, no, 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 no. I have my own math. You owe me $15,000. You would say, you're crazy. Yeah, exactly. There's no such thing as your own math. There's no such thing as your own truth. Oh, yeah, sure, there are truths that just apply to you. Like, say, maybe you like chocolate and I like vanilla. But it's the truth that you like chocolate and I like vanilla. So this idea that there isn't the truth, only my truth, is a the truth statement to say there's no such things as the truths. I know this can give you intellectual constipation if you think about it long enough, but that's because it's self-defeating. You've got to get good at recognizing these self-defeating statements. They're everywhere. How about... It's true for you, but not for me. You've probably heard that. If somebody says that, you want to say, is that true for everybody? Is true for you, but not for me, true for everybody? Because if true for you, but not for me is true for everybody, then true for you, but not for me can't be true because it's true for everybody. Did I say that right? Yeah, you can see that that's a logically self-defeating statement. And if you just turn the claim on itself, you can expose it for the lie that it is, for the falsehood that it is. Now, we're going to cover more of this. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek, on the American Family Radio Network. I'm filling in for Dan Celia, who's sick right now. Please pray that he will get better and can return soon. But we're going to be back here in just two minutes. Don't go anywhere. We'll see you in two. Welcome back to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Me, Frank Turek, filling in for the great Dan Celia. Please pray. We hope Dan will be back soon. He's recovering from an illness. I'm just filling in this week for Dan. And today we're talking about how do we know that Christianity is true? And I mentioned we have to go through four questions. And this is from our book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Uh, The first question you have to go through to show that Christianity is true is to establish that truth exists because people say there is no truth. And just before the break, we were talking about the idea that some people will deny there's truth out there. They'll say it's true for you, but not for me. And we just said, well, the way to respond to that is to ask, is that true for everybody, right? Because that particular statement defeats itself when you turn the claim on itself. Just like when people say there's no truth or you got your truth, I got my truth. These are all self-defeating statements and you've got to get good at recognizing them. By the way, it's true for you, but not for me um, is a statement that defeats itself just like to say there is no truth because it's actually setting up an absolute truth claim when it claims that it's not really an absolute truth claim uh actually there's a fun way to deal with it's true for you but not for me rather than just pointing out it's self-defeating just say go try that with your bank teller suppose you go to your bank teller and you say i'd like a hundred thousand dollars out of my account the bank teller looks your account and says i'm sorry you only have six dollars and 12 cents in your account well, it's easy to get the money. You simply say, ha, that's true for you, but not for me. Give me the hundred grand. Are you going to get the money? No. If it's true, there was only $6.12 in your account. That's true for all people at all times and all places when referring to you at that time, when referring to your account at that time. That's just true. So the idea here is it's true. Things are true whether you believe them or not. I mean, it's true that Jesus rose from the dead if he really did, whether you believe it or not. 
In fact, sometimes I ask people, why do you think Christianity is true? And they say, because I have faith. Is that a good answer? Does your faith change whether or not God exists or Jesus rose from the dead? No, your faith doesn't change a thing about those things. Look, either God exists or doesn't exist, regardless of what you believe about it. Faith doesn't change that. I mean, do you have to believe something to make it true? Do you have to believe in gravity to stay on the ground? Do people who don't believe in gravity float away? Hey, look, there's another one. Hey, if you believe, you'll come back. No, that's not the way it works. It's true or false, regardless of what you believe about it. So you might say, well, why is the Bible always talking about faith then? Because there's two kinds of faith. There's belief that, and then there's belief in. Belief that is getting evidence that God exists, that Jesus rose from the dead, that the Bible's true. But all the belief that in the world won't get your moral transgressions forgiven. For that, you got to go from belief that to belief in or trust in. James, the half-brother of Jesus who wrote that little book in the New Testament called James, says, even the demons believe that God exists, but they tremble. Do you realize that demons know that God exists better than we do? But they don't trust in him. Why? They don't want to trust in him. You see, because there's a difference between belief that, which is just of the head, and belief in, which is not just of the head, but of the heart. To go from belief that to belief in requires a choice. I I know people who know that Christianity is true, but they still won't believe in Jesus. I even ask people this question. If Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? I've had many atheists say, no. No? How's that reasonable? How's that rational? It's not. The problem isn't in the head. The problem's in the heart. They don't want it to be true. They don't want there to be a God. Why? Because they want to be God of their own lives. And they think God is going to get in the way of what they want to do. You see, they're not on a truth quest. They're on a happiness quest. And they're just going to believe whatever they think is going to make them happy. So all you can do for somebody like that is just love them. Just plant seeds. Just be there if they need you. But if they're not interested, if they're going to say that even if it's true, I won't believe it, well, it doesn't matter how much evidence you give them. They're not, they're not going to be moved. Their will is in the way. They're in the way. It's not so much about the evidence for God's existence. It's about the evidence for their resistance. They're resisting God. That's why you should ask people, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? By the way, we can see this distinction, belief that to belief in, by just thinking about relationships. When I first met my wife 36 years ago, I got evidence that she would be a good wife. But all the evidence in the world didn't make her my wife. I had to take a step of trust in her to ask her to be my wife. And in a momentary lapse of judgment, she said yes. See, that's the difference between belief that and belief in. Belief that is just of the head. Belief in is of the heart. Most of the time when the Bible's talking about faith, it's talking about the second kind. Belief in, trust in. After you know that Jesus is the Savior, trust in him. But it would be completely ridiculous to say, that you should just believe without any evidence. Why believe in Christianity and not Islam or atheism or something else? Faith isn't blind. Faith is trusting in what you have good evidence to believe. Trusting in what you have good evidence to believe. That's what faith is. Now, there are other self-defeating statements like there's no truth in anything but science. You just ask people, is that a scientific truth? No, that's a philosophical claim. And you can't do science without philosophy. Or sometimes people say you should doubt everything. You want to turn the claim on itself. You want to say, should I doubt that? Why are skeptics skeptical of everything but skepticism? They think that's true, right? <laughs> in fact, atheists believe in things. They don't just lack a belief. They think that, that everything's made of molecules. There is no spiritual realm. That's a positive belief. They think we got here by some sort of quantum fluctuation. 
That's a positive belief. They think that we got here through some sort of biological random process called macroevolution. That's a positive belief. They don't just lack an inf- a-, a-, a belief in God. They think they can explain the reality the way it is with these other belief systems. So why should I believe those things? Th- those things are true. Can you give me any evidence those things are true? Turns out you can't. Not good evidence anyway, in my view. How about you ought not judge? You hear that a lot. If you turn the claim on itself, you ought to say, hey, isn't that a judgment? If we're not to judge, why are you judging me for judging? See, that's a judgment to say you ought not judge. And by the way, Jesus didn't say don't judge. He said judge not lest you be judged. It's not a command not to judge. It's a command on how to judge. In other words, don't judge hypocritically. If you've got that problem, fix it, then go help your brother. So Jesus isn't telling us not to judge. He's telling us actually how to judge. And by the way, it would be completely ridiculous to say don't make judgments. Why? Number one, it's a judgment itself. Number two, you'd be dead already if you didn't make judgments. You made 100 judgments today, just getting out of bed, just getting to work, right? Those are all judgments. Good choices from bad choices, safe choices from dangerous choices. Everybody makes judgments. Atheists make judgments. They judge there's no God. They judge Jesus didn't rise from the dead. They judge the Bible's not telling the truth. They judge there's no meaning to life. When you die, you just become worm food. There's no meaning. There's no hope. Have a nice day. These are all judgments. Again, the question isn't whether or not you can make judgments. The question is, are your judgments true? Now, we cover this in a lot of depth in the book. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. And if you go to our YouTube channel, if you look at any of our college events, you can see... Uh, this entire presentation visually in a lot more detail. Just go to the cross-examined YouTube channel. I'm just skimming the surface here on this uh, broadcast here today because we have limited time. The bottom line is when people say there is no truth, they're actually uttering a truth claim. Of course there's truth. In fact, if there was no truth, would you ever go to school? Would you ever read a book? <laughs> would you ever go to church? Would you ever Would you ever watch the news? Well, yeah, you're probably not getting much truth on the news, except unless it's if it's, if, if it's one news now, you will. But anyway... Um, here at the American Family Radio Network. No, of course there's truth. It's self-defeating to say there's no truth, so it's obvious there's truth, which means that relativism and postmodernism are false because they claim it's true that there is no truth, okay? So get used to turning a claim on itself because then you can point out things that are false. And if you can avoid things that are false, then you can concentrate on things that are true because if you start living by false principles and they're all over the place, false claims in our society, if you start living by these things, you're ultimately going to slap up against reality and it's going to hurt. All right? All right, second question. I said there are four questions to show that Christianity is true. Is does God exist? We just covered does truth exist? Now does God exist? And there are three arguments that I normally give for the existence of God. There are many more arguments than this, but when I have limited time, I just give three. The first argument, and by the way, you don't need the Bible to know any of this. You can establish that God exists without the Bible. It would be circular to say God exists by using the Bible, unless you can give evidence that the Bible's true. You don't need the Bible to know that God exists. In fact, the Bible even teaches this. (laughs) Paul says God's invisible qualities are clearly seen so that men are without excuse. They know that God exists. They know there's a creator. Now, they don't necessarily know it's Jesus, but they know there's some kind of creator out there. Anyway, the first argument is from the beginning of the universe, known as the cosmological argument. And cosmological comes from the Greek word cosmos, which means world or universe. It says if the universe had a beginning, it must have had a beginner. And even atheists are admitting the universe had a beginning. In fact, Stephen Hawking, who was probably the top physicist in the world before he died about four years ago, 
He was an atheist. He said this, almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. Now, Hawking tried to come up with another explanation other than God for this creation event. He failed, but he's admitting the data that space, time, and matter had a beginning out of nothing. It exploded into being out of nothing. Once there was no space, time, and matter, and then the entire space-time continuum leapt into existence. Now, that's really not controversial anymore. Atheists admit this. What's controversial is what caused the universe to explode into being out of nothing. Well, ladies and gentlemen, if this is true, and it's virtually universally or nearly universally accepted today that the universe had a beginning, even by atheists, if that's really true, what could have caused space-time and matter to come into existence? Seems to me, if space-time and matter came into existence then whatever created space-time and matter can't be made of space-time and matter. In other words, the cause must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful to create the universe out of nothing, personal in order to choose to create, because to go from a state of nothingness to a state of creation, someone had to make a choice and only persons can make choices. The cause would also have to be intelligent to have a mind to make a choice. Now, ladies and gentlemen, when you think about a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, personal, intelligent being, who do you think of? God, of course. Well, you say, well, Frank, how do you know it's the Christian God? We don't. Yet, we haven't done enough research yet. This could be Allah at this point or some generic theistic God. But if we keep looking at the evidence and we realize that Jesus rose from the dead, then the same being that walked out of the tomb 1,989 years ago is the same being in whose divine nature created the universe out of nothing. We haven't gotten there yet, but from this one argument, which is known as the cosmological argument, we have six attributes for what appears to be a creator God, a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, personal, intelligent creator. Now, I don't have time to go through the evidence that there is a beginning. As they say, uh, atheists are agreeing with it, so we, there's no sense going through it right here. We don't have time to go through it. It's all in the book. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, chapter 3, if you're interested in this. But almost everyone now agrees it had a beginning. And by the way, notice that everyone believes in at least one miracle. Yeah, Christians, we believe in more than one. We believe God created the universe out of nothing and many others. But atheists believe that no one created the universe out of nothing. What takes more faith? That someone created the universe out of nothing or that no one created the universe out of nothing? I'll leave that to you. You're listening to me, Frank Turk, filling in for Dan Celia today. We're going through the evidence for Christianity back in two. Welcome back to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turk, filling in for Dan Celia, who is sick right now. Please pray for his recovery. I'll be here today and on Friday. There'll be another guest host tomorrow. We hope Dan will be back soon. Uh, Please pray for his recovery. We're talking today about the evidence for Christianity, and I said there are four questions you need to go through to show that Christianity is true. Does truth exist? Does God exist? That's what we're into right now. In fact, tonight, if any of you are near uh, North Carolina, particularly near the Charlotte area, I'm going to be up just north of Charlotte in a town called Hickory, at uh, Corinth Reformed Church to present this I don't have enough faith to be an atheist material. Uh, And so if you're anywhere near that area and want to join us, it's free, and we'll have Q&A. And there's 
so much visually that I can't show you on radio, but if you want to see it live and ask a question, it's tonight at 6.30 Eastern at Corinth Reformed Church. If you go to our website, crossexamined.org, that's crossexamined with a D on the end of it, .org, and click on events, you'll see my calendar there, Frank Turek calendar. Uh, so I'd love to see you if you're in the area tonight. And then uh, in a couple of weeks, a couple of weekends from now, I'll be at Lake Free Church Apologetics Conference in Lindstrom, Minnesota, up in Minnesota. That is Friday and Saturday, February 25th and 26th, and then I'll be speaking at the morning services on February 27th up there in Lindstrom, Minnesota. So if you're in that area, check that out. And then uh, going more off into the future, we'll be out at Ohio State. I think it's on March 8th, and then the week after that, University of Utah, Boise State, uh, we've got several colleges coming up. This is where we present this I don't have enough faith to be an atheist material because we think it's important to go into areas that don't get much positive Christian teaching and try and present the evidence for Christianity, to throw the Christians a lifeline and to put a stone in the shoe of the skeptics. All right, so we were talking about before the break the first argument for the existence of God, the cosmological argument. The second argument, which I think is even just as persuasive, maybe more, is called the teleological argument or the design argument. And I wish I could show you some visuals on this, but since we're on radio, we can't. But basically what scientists have discovered in recent decades is that the universe is precisely fine-tuned to support life. That if you were to change any one of a number of factors about our universe, uh, either the universe would not exist or it would be a universe that couldn't support life anywhere at all. And even atheists admit that the universe appears fine-tuned. For example, Stephen Hawking, again, an atheist, put it this way. He said, if, if the expansion rate of the universe was different by one part in a thousand million million, a second after the Big Bang, the universe would have collapsed back on itself or never developed galaxies. If you change the expansion rate, that infinitesimal amount from the very beginning there would be no universe or no universe that could support life. Now, you can't make any sort of evolutionary explanation for this. You can't say the expansion rate evolved to such and such a point. Why? Because this, this is the expansion rate at the very creation event, at the very beginning of the universe. It seems to me that the same being that created space, time, and matter is the same being that created the expansion rate, fine-tuned the expansion rate to be precisely what it needed to be for us to be here. How about the gravitational force? If the gravitational force were altered by, by more than one part in 10 to the 40th power compared to the strong nuclear force, stars would not exist and therefore neither would we. What's one in, one in 10 to the 40th precision? Let me give you an illustration. Cover the entire North America continent in dimes up to the moon. That's uh, about 230-something thousand miles. Then cover a billion other continents equal the size of North America in dimes all the way to the moon. Mark one dime red in that unbelievable collection of dimes. Blindfold somebody, throw them into the pile, have them pick one dime. The odds that they would pick that one dime would be something like 1 in 10 to the 40th power. What's 1 in 10 to the 40th power? That's 1 in 10 with 40 zeros following it. It's hard to get your head around that number. So think about the dimes stacked to the moon on North America, on a billion North Americas, and just one of those dimes would be one in 10 to the 40th. I don't have enough faith to believe that the value 
of this of the gravitational force is precisely where it needs to be at that level of precision unless somebody designed it look either somebody designed it to be there or someone didn't design it it's undesigned there's no other logical possibility either that value is designed or it isn't to claim that it's not designed i think is the height of irrationality Somebody designed it to be there. And this is just one, or I just gave you a couple out of more than, say, a dozen of these constants about our, about our universe. Change any one of them imperceptibly and we're not here. This is why even Christopher Hitchens, a guy I debated many years ago, the British, Br- British atheist who sounded more brilliant than he was because, because he had a British accent. This is why Hitchens even said, yeah, that fine-tuning argument is really hard to get around if you're an atheist. It's the, it's the best argument that the theists have. Not only that, you're designed. Do you know that in every one of your 40 trillion cells, there's a software program that's three and a half billion letters long? All the letters are in the right order. I mean, that's your genome. That's your DNA. Look, if you're walking along the beach and you see in the sand, John loves Mary, who do you think created that? You don't think the wind, the rain, and erosion created John Loves Mary in the sand. You say, oh, that had to be an intelligent being. John or Mary put that in the sand, right? Well, if John Loves Mary requires a mind, what about a message that's three and a half billion letters long? I mean, John Loves Mary's what, 15 letters long maybe? I haven't counted it, but not many. Your software program is three and a half billion letters long, and all the letters are in the right order. That's called design. So the first argument is the argument from the beginning of the universe for God. The second argument for God is the argument from design, which you can see in the universe and in life. And the third argument for God is called the moral argument. And the moral argument says if there's one thing morally wrong out there, just one, like it's wrong to torture babies for fun, or it's wrong to murder six million people in a Holocaust, there has to be a God. Why? Because if there is no standard beyond humanity, if everything is just a matter of human opinion, you can't say torturing babies for fun is really wrong. It would just be your opinion. But we know torturing babies for fun is really wrong. If that's true, and it is, there must be a standard beyond us that's really right. A standard of righteousness, justice, and love that we are obligated to obey. If there's no God, you can't justify objective morality you can know it you can say oh i know torturing babies for fun is wrong but you can't justify why it's wrong if there's no god it's just your opinion well we know there are certain moral issues that are not just a matter of opinion if that's the case god exists in fact if there is no god the nazis were not wrong if there's no god how could we say the nazis are wrong they were just following their government the way we said they were wrong is we pointed out there's a standard beyond your government It's called international law. Thomas Jefferson called it nature's law in the Declaration of Independence. Uh, C.S. Lewis called it the moral law. In reality, they're all talking about the same thing. What are they talking about? God's nature. God's nature is the standard. If there is no God, you can't say love is better than rape. Oh, you may like love better, but you you can't justify why it's better. There are no human rights if there is no God. There are people running around out there claiming they have a right to this and a right to that. Look, if, there are, if there's no God, there's no human rights. Our, our Declaration of Independence said, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men were endowed by their government with certain unalienable rights. No, endowed by their creator. Your government can be wrong. The Nazi government was wrong. 
Our government was wrong when it allowed slavery. Our government's wrong right now when it allows abortion. You can't make any moral progress if there's no standard beyond you. It would be just your opinion. You can't say slavery's wrong, racism's wrong, murder's wrong, unless God exists. You can't even complain about the problem of evil. Why? Because if there's no such thing as good, there's no such thing as evil. But good only exists if God exists. Otherwise, it's just your opinion. You see, evil doesn't exist on its own. Evil exists as a lack in a good thing. Evil is like cancer. If you take all the body out of the cancer, you got a better cancer. Sorry, you got a better body. If you take all the body out of the cancer, you got a better body. What happens if you take all the body out of the cancer? You got nothing. It doesn't exist on its own. Evil is like rust in a car. If you take all the rust out of a car, you got a better car. What happens if you take all the car out of the rust? You got a pinto. No, you got nothing, right? In other words, evil only exists as a privation in good. It's a parasite in good. So if you're going to say something's evil, you're presupposing something's good. But if something is good, it can only be good if God exists. Otherwise, it's just your opinion. So evil doesn't disprove God. Evil may prove there's a devil out there. But it can't disprove God because there'd be no such thing as evil unless there was good, and there'd be no such thing as good unless God existed. In fact, I think on Friday we're going to do, if God exists, why does he allow evil? We're going to talk about that on Friday. So save any questions about that for that. All right, so from these three arguments, from the cosmological, teleological, and moral arguments, we can conclude that the first cause is spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, personal, intelligent, a moral being who created all things. And actually, if I had more time, I could explain how he's also sustaining all things to this very moment. Look, we haven't even opened the Bible yet, and we have a being that could be the God of the Bible. From those three arguments, we've got a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, personal, intelligent, moral creator who created all things and sustains all things. That's what we mean by God. Now, how do we know this is the Christian God? Well, for that, we've got to go to the fourth, or sorry, the third question to show that Christianity is true. Remember, we said the first question is, does truth exist? The second question is, does God exist? The third question is, are miracles possible? Why? Because God can use miracles to tell us who to listen to. God can use miracles to say, hey, this is a special sign from me. So you should trust that, say, Moses is telling the truth or Jesus is telling the truth or Paul is telling the truth because these people can do miracles. And that is confirming that what they're saying, I agree with, or my revelation is coming through these people. In other words, miracles can be used to confirm the message. The sign confirms the sermon. And a lot of people don't think miracles are possible because maybe they've never seen one or maybe because they, uh, they just think for some reason they're impossible. Well, in reality, the greatest miracle in the Bible has already occurred, and even atheists are agreeing with the data for the miracle, the greatest miracle. What's the greatest miracle? No, it's not the resurrection. The greatest miracle is the first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If that verse is true, every other verse is at least possible. And even atheists today are admitting the data for the first miracle. They're admitting the universe exploded into being out of nothing. If that's the case, every other miracle is at least possible. If God can create the universe out of nothing, can he resurrect Jesus from the dead? Of course. Can he walk on water? Of course. Can he part the Red Sea? Of course. If he can create the entire show out of nothing, 
then he can do any of those things. And we'll talk more about miracles. Why don't we see them today if they're happening or if they can happen? We'll talk about that right after the break. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek. Website, cross-examined, two, uh, one word, cross-examined with a D on the end of it. Welcome back to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek, filling in for Dan Celia today. Again, I want you to pray for Dan because he's not feeling well. He can't do the show this week, so I'm here today. I'll be here Friday. Someone else will be here tomorrow. Um, Please pray for his recovery. Today we're talking about the evidence that Christianity is true. We've gone through, or we're going through four questions. Does truth exist? Does God exist? Are miracles possible? Right now we're in Are Miracles Possible? And as I said before, The greatest miracle in the Bible is the first verse. If God created the universe out of nothing, he can do whatever he wants. It's not logically impossible inside the universe. Uh, And the question that some people have, though, well, okay, how come we don't see miracles today? You know, I've never seen a miracle, so how can I believe in miracles? Well, when people say they haven't seen a miracle, I normally say, well, look around. You're living in one. This universe is a miracle. But secondly, you believe in a lot of things you've never seen. You believe in in your mind. Have you ever seen it? No, you're using it right now. You believe in the laws of logic and the laws of mathematics. Have you ever seen them? No, you're using them right now. You believe in justice. Have you ever seen justice? No, you may have seen justice done or injustice done, but you've never seen justice itself because it's not something you see. It's an immaterial reality grounded in the nature of God. You've never seen gravity. Wait a minute, Frank. When I see stuff fall to the ground, I see gravity all the time. No, you're not seeing gravity. What are you seeing? You're seeing the effects of gravity. You're not seeing gravity in itself. In fact, we really don't even know what gravity is, to tell you the truth. But you're seeing the effects. And by the way, that's how we know God exists. If someone were to ask you, how do you know that God exists? You ought to say, I know God by his effects. I'm reasoning from effect back to cause. So if there's a creation, that's the effect. I'm reasoning back to a cause, a creator. If there's design, that's the effect. I'm reasoning back to a cause, a designer. If there's a moral law pressing on my heart, there is. That's the effect. I'm reasoning back to a cause, a moral lawgiver. If I have the ability to reason and understand things outside my skull, that's the effect. I ought to reason back to a cause, a mind. So you're reasoning from effect back to cause. That's what scientists do. They discover an effect. They're trying to figure out what caused it. So how do you know God exists? You know God by his effects. You can know God by his witness of the Holy Spirit. That's an effect too. But in order for you to show God exists, it's different than you knowing God exists. Just because you have the witness of the Holy Spirit doesn't mean that means you can show somebody that God exists because that's a personal revelation to you. But in order for you to show God exists, you have to give them arguments that they can they can investigate like we've been talking about, the argument from the beginning of the universe, the argument from the design of the universe and the design of life, the moral argument. So you can argue from effect back to cause. You've never seen George Washington, yet you believe in him. Why? Because you believe that the effects left over by George Washington are best explained by a historical person known as George Washington. Same thing is true with Jesus. He's left effects behind that are best explained by a cause known as Jesus of Nazareth. And by the way, if miracles do occur today, and they don't need to occur today for Christianity to be true, there could have been no miracles since Jesus and the apostles and Christianity would still be true. I think miracles do occur today. In fact, uh, Craig Keener, who wrote a brilliant two-volume set called Miracles, has shown numerous miracles that have occurred, and he has documentation for them. But 
even if they do occur today, they have to be rare. Why do they have to be rare? Because if they occurred all the time, they wouldn't get our attention as special acts from God. Imagine if resurrections occurred all the time. What would the resurrection of Jesus mean to us? Nothing. Somebody goes to you and goes, Jesus rose from the dead to prove he was God. And you go, so what? Uncle Leroy just rose from the dead two weeks ago. Now I got to give the inheritance back. No, it's got to be a rare event if it's going to get our attention. If miracles occurred all the time, they wouldn't get our attention as special acts of God. In fact, natural laws, repeatable natural laws have to be what governs the universe in order for us to even see what a miracle is. The only way we can recognize a miracle is against the backdrop of regular repeatable natural laws. And by the way, why are there natural laws? Because there's a lawgiver. And why don't they change? Because God is behind them. God has given us these natural laws that are highly fine-tuned, by the way. Change any one of them imperceptibly, and none of us are here. So we know miracles are possible because God exists, even if we haven't seen them personally ourselves. The next question is, question four to show that Christianity is true, is, is the New Testament telling us the truth, particularly about the resurrection? So we got, does truth exist? Does God exist? Are miracles possible? And is the New Testament telling us the truth? I think there are several lines of evidence the New Testament writers are telling us the truth. For example, we don't have time to go through all these. There's, there's 10 of them in the book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Let me just mention a couple of them. One is the fact that there's embarrassing stories throughout the text, throughout the New Testament documents, that these people never would have invented. You would never invent embarrassing stories about yourself or about your supposed hero. For example, the New Testament writers depict themselves as dim-witted. They don't understand what Jesus is talking about most of the time. Uh, The New Testament writers depict Peter, their leader, as someone who denies Jesus three times who runs away with the other disciples at the crucifixion. In fact, they're not making this up. That would be too embarrassing to say that they ran away while the women were the brave ones that stayed behind and discovered the empty tomb. The men wrote the New Testament documents down. Why are they saying they were scared and the women were the brave ones? They would never say that. And in that culture, they would never say the women were the first witnesses if they're trying to pass a lie off as the truth. Why? Because... It would be embarrassing, first of all, to have the women be the first witnesses because in that culture, a woman's testimony was not considered on par with that of a man. Certainly not a demon-possessed woman, Mary Magdalene. She wouldn't be a good witness regardless. Why are you saying they were the first witnesses? All four Gospels say they were. Why? Because that's the way it really happened. They're just telling the truth. I actually had a woman come up to me once and she said, Frank, I know why Jesus appeared to the women first. I said, why? And she said, because he wanted to get the story out. I said, that is an excellent point. I had not thought of that. (laughs) Because ladies, when your man comes home from work, does he say much? No. (laughs) Anyway, there's other embarrassing details. Like the disciples at the Great Commission, this is recorded in Matthew 28, are doubtful that Jesus has risen from the dead when he's standing risen from the dead right in front of them. I mean, it actually says some believed, but some doubted. You think they're making this up? No, this is embarrassing. There's also a potentially embarrassing details about Jesus. He's considered out of his mind by his own family who come to seize him and take him home. This is Mark chapter 3. He's uh, considered a drunkard. He's called demon-possessed. You think they made that up? He has his feet wiped with the hair of a prostitute, which easily could have been seen as a sexual advance. 
And oh, by the way, there are two prostitutes in Jesus' bloodline, Rahab and Tamar. Do you think the New Testament writers got together and decided that they needed to spice up the Messiah's bloodline a little bit when they put the genealogies together? No. They're just telling the truth, as embarrassing as it is. This is not an invented story. And there's so much more in the book, I have to skim over because we have limited time. Also, another reason to believe these people told the truth is they suffered excruciating deaths for saying Jesus had risen from the dead. And these people were people who were Jewish believers in Yahweh. All the writers of the New Testament, with the exception of Luke, all of them are Jewish believers in Yahweh. Luke is the only Gentile. Why would these Jews, who didn't think Jesus could be God because it was blasphemy for a man to claim to be God, and why did they think that a resurrection occurred in the middle of time when they only believed in a resurrection at the end of time. Why would they invent a man claiming to be God and a man resurrecting from the dead? If they didn't believe that going in, they're believers in Yahweh already. Why would they invent this? To get themselves beaten, tortured, and killed? No, of course not. Then why did they do it? Because it really happened. That's why. There's no reason to make this up. They're not inventing it. They had no motive to say the resurrection occurred if it didn't really occur. Why would they then go die for a known lie? You say, well, some Muslims will die for Islam. Are you saying that martyrdom proves Christianity? If so, don't you have to say martyrdom proves Islam? No, why? Because look, the Muslim martyrs of today haven't witnessed anything. They haven't witnessed anything that says Islam is true. They just have faith. But the New Testament martyrs of New Testament times, they witnessed Jesus rise from the dead. They saw Jesus the dead. They touched Jesus. They ate with Jesus. They verified with their own senses that Jesus had risen from the dead. You see, many people will die for a lie they think is the truth. Nobody will die for a lie they know is a lie. And the New Testament writers were in a position to know whether it was a lie or not, and they went to their deaths anyway. You can't get better evidence than that unless you were there yourself. All right, last thing I'm going to say on the New Testament. There's so much evidence, but again, we're out of time. I'm going to say this. The New Testament writers did not create the resurrection. The resurrection created the New Testament writers. You would not have documents written in the first century by Bible-believing Jews, Old Testament-believing Jews, that said Jesus had resurrected from the dead unless he really did. Why would they make this up? They wouldn't. And by the way, Christianity did not originate with a book. Christianity originated with an event, the resurrection. Do you realize there were thousands of Christians before a line of the New Testament was ever written? Yeah. Why? Because people witnessed Jesus rise from the dead, or they knew people who did. It didn't originate with a book. It originated with an event. So there's more in the book. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Check that out for the detailed argumentation. But if truth exists, and it does, God exists, and he does, miracles are possible, and they do, and the New Testament's telling us the truth about the resurrection— then Christianity is true. Because if Jesus rose from the dead to prove he was God, because he predicted and accomplished his own resurrection from the dead, then whatever he teaches is true. He taught the Old Testament was was the word of God, and he promised the New Testament. Look, I just have a personal policy. If somebody predicts and accomplishes his own resurrection from the dead, I just trust whatever the guy says. That's why Christianity is true, ladies and gentlemen. We'll talk more uh, on Friday about why does God allow evil if it's true. But I want to mention one other thing. My son, who is an intelligence officer in the military, has already uh, gotten his degree in philosophy from Southern Evangelical Seminary, where I went. 
and we put a new book together I want to tell you about. It's called Hollywood Heroes, How Your Favorite Movies Reveal God. Check this out. Go to HollywoodHeroesBook.com, HollywoodHeroesBook.com. It comes out in May, but if you pre-order it now, we're actually going to send you the audio version for free. Just go to HollywoodHeroesBook.com. It's a fun book. We cover a lot of movies to show how Jesus is the ultimate hero and how these heroes in these movies emulate Jesus. You can get your kids interested in Christianity with this book. Hollywood Heroes. All right. See you next time, friends.